the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Hello, and welcome to In the Word, a ministry of Calvary Chapel of Orlando. We hope that God speaks to you today as we continue our study, verse by verse, chapter by chapter, with Senior Pastor Will Ramirez in the book of Luke. After 400 years of prophetic silence from God, God sent an angel to a woman named Elizabeth, sharing that she would have a son named John, who would be the forerunner of the coming Messiah. Gabriel then went to a woman named Mary, delivering the news that she would give birth to the Messiah, and his name would be Jesus. The time came for both John and Jesus to be born. Jesus was brought to the temple to be circumcised according to the law of Moses. While there, Simeon and Anna both testified that this baby Jesus was to be the Savior of the world. Years have passed, and we will now see Jesus around the age of 12. We join Pastor Will in Luke chapter 2, verse 41. We've covered the birth of Jesus and John the Baptist and all the miraculous events associated with them. But before we move on to their impact as adults, Luke shares a story about Jesus' preteen years. Now, Clearly, he had to have gotten this from Mary. He had to have interviewed Mary uh, to get this information because no one would have known the details aside from Mary. Uh, So remember, Luke is showing us that we have a reliable faith, that he met with people who saw these events, eyewitness events, uh, eyewitness these events, and he's relaying them to us. When we bring up or mention preteen years, many in our culture kind of groan. You think, this is not the story about Jesus I want to hear. Uh, But for a Jewish family, those years were spent learning what it meant to be a God-fearing adult. And so uh, that, the idea is that when they reach the age you know, of adulthood, they would experience God's blessings in their life. So as we look at this story, may Jesus' attitude show us the key uh, to a blessed life so that we can experience God's blessing ourselves. So chapter 2, and we'll begin in verse 41. It says, now his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of the Passover. And when he was 12 years old, they went up to Jerusalem after the custom of the feast. And when they had fulfilled the days, as they returned, the child Jesus tarried behind in Jerusalem, and Joseph and his mother knew knew not of it. But they, supposing him to have been in the company, went a day's journey, and they sought him among their kinsfolk and acquaintance. And when they found him not, they turned back again to Jerusalem, seeking him. And it came to pass that after three days, it's bad when you lose the Messiah for three days, they found him in the temple, sitting in the midst of the doctors, both hearing them and asking them questions. And all that heard him were astonished at his understanding and answers. And when they saw him, they were amazed. And his mother said unto him, son... Why hast thou thus dealt with us? Behold, your father and I have sought you sorrowing. And he said unto them, How is it that ye sought me? Knew you not that I must be about my father's business? 
And they understood not the saying which he spoke unto them. And so he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was subject unto them. But his mother kept all these sayings in her heart. And Jesus increased in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man. You know, I wonder if Luke was sitting down with Mary and he said, you know, tell me one story about when Jesus was a kid. And she goes, oh, have I got a doozy for you. Let me tell you about the time we lost him and we didn't know he was for three days. The setting here is interesting for it says, now his parents, verse 41, went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of the Passover. We find the feast of the Passover in Exodus chapter 12, verses 1 through 14, the very first Passover. But there God gives the instructions to Israel about what they're going to do. And he tells them that they're going to celebrate this continually. It says in Exodus chapter 12, verse 1, And the Lord spoke unto Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, saying, This month shall be unto you the beginning of months. This would start their religious calendar. It shall be the first month of the year to you. I want you to speak unto all the congregation of Israel, saying, In the tenth day of this month, they shall take to them every man a lamb, according to the house of their fathers, a lamb for a house. And if the household be too little for the lamb... Let him and his neighbor next unto his house take it according to the number of the souls. Every man according to his eating shall make your count for the lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male of the first year, and you shall take it out from the sheep or from the goats. And you shall keep it until the 14th day of the same month. And the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill it in the evening. And they shall take of the blood... And strike it on the two side posts and on the upper door post of the houses wherein they shall eat it. And they shall eat the flesh in that night, roasted with fire and unleavened bread and with bitter herbs shall they eat of it. Eat not of it raw nor sodden at all with water, but roast it with fire, his head with his legs and with the entrails thereof. And you shall let nothing of it remain until the morning and that which remains of it until the morning you shall burn with fire. And thus shall you eat of it with your loins girded, your shoes on your feet, and your staff in your hand, and you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. For I will pass through the land of Egypt this night and will smite all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And against all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgment. I am the Lord. And the blood shall be to you for a token, a sign, upon the houses where where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. And the plague shall not be upon you to destroy you when I smite the land of Egypt. And this day shall be unto you for a memorial, and you shall keep it a feast to the Lord throughout your generations. You shall keep it a feast by an ordinance forever. Israel was to celebrate this every single year in remembrance of the fact that God passed over them. He didn't judge them, but he passed over them when he saw the blood of the lamb. And of course, the symbolism there referring to Christ and his sacrifice for us, he is our Passover lamb, uh, is beautiful. It says here, though, that his parents, they went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of the Passover. Why did they go there? It says, you bring the lamb into your house and do all this stuff. Well, later on in Deuteronomy 16, in verse 16, the Lord instructed Israel that they were to celebrate the Passover at the place that God would choose his name to be in. And so, in other words, it would be wherever the tabernacle was. Now, in this day, of course, the tabernacle is where? It's in Jerusalem, because now they don't have a tabernacle, a tent. They have a permanent dwelling place, the temple. And so Joseph was required by the law of God to be in Jerusalem. 
Now, most people, though, they went together as a family. Now, this shows Joseph and Mary's devotion to the Lord. This trip was expensive, and they were not wealthy. They, by this time, Jesus is 12. Uh, we know Jesus had four brothers and at least two sisters. So this was a large family going on a long trip. They would have to find lodging in Jerusalem. This would not be a cheap trip. But they obeyed the Lord's command, it says, year after year. Now, what's interesting is the rabbis in Jesus' day had changed the law to state that only everyone within 15 miles of, uh, of Jerusalem had to come to the temple. But that's not what the scripture said. You know, there are many today who, who will say that God's commands are too hard or they're unreasonable or they don't match with the current culture, and, and then they change God's standard. But for those who love the Lord, obedience is an optional or it's not up for discussion. It's not a matter of whether the funds are there or not, or if you have time or not, or if it's difficult or easy. You do what God says because you want to please his heart, right? We want to honor him. We love him. Jesus said, if you love me, keep my commandments. And that's our heart's desire, you know? And I would ask you this morning, you know, as we look at this family that has been meticulous up to this point, you know, Mary's purification, uh, Jesus' circumcision, his dedication, and now the keeping of the Passover, you know, they were a family that was honoring uh, the Lord's word. And, and is that a description of, of your marriage? Is that a description of your family? You know, do you honor the Lord's word? Well, Jerusalem would be swelling at this point. Josephus tells us to over 2 million people during the Passover. It was one of the holiest times of the year. But this would also be a very significant Passover for Jesus. For it says here in verse 42 that when he was 12 years old, they went up to Jerusalem after the custom of the feast. See, in Jesus' day, Jewish boys weren't considered men until the age of 20 years old. That's when they would be counted, numbered amongst those who could go out to war. Uh, so when they would take a census, they would be counted as an adult at that point. But they became what is called a son of the commandment or a son of the law at age 12. That's something modern day you may be familiar with, the bar mitzvah, you know, the son of the commandment. And so uh, today they celebrated at 13, but back in Jesus's day at 12 is when they were, you know, legally entitled to be called a son of the commandment. Now, at this point, they'd be required to keep the law themselves. So Jesus, who had been instructed on the Passover, who had been, you know, he would see them put the blood on the, on the, on the walls, you know, uh, uh, the door, uh, the top of the sides of the door and with the basin below in remembrance of all these things. Jesus himself, who being the oldest, would have to ask certain questions during the Passover feast. Now he's going to finally, for the first time, get to go inside the temple during the Passover. It's a very big time for him. This would be the first year that Jesus would be required to appear at Jerusalem for Passover. And, and this will, I guarantee it was quite the spectacular appearance. Verse 43. Now, when they had fulfilled the days as they returned, so as they're on their way home to Nazareth, the child Jesus tarried behind in Jerusalem and Joseph and his mother knew not of it. Now, when it says they fulfilled their days, um, it doesn't mean that they were there to the end of the feast. The Feast of Unleavened Bread occurred at the same time as Passover, and so it'd be eight total days, the whole full feast time, with Passover and Unleavened Bread. However, the rabbis allowed people to leave after only three days of attending. It's very likely that that's when these guys left, and we'll learn later why. That's when, when uh, Jesus' parents left. 
But it mentions as they finished the required days, the three days, they went up from Jerusalem, they were returning home, that Jesus, it says the child Jesus, it's a bad translation, it just means young person. The young person Jesus, he tarried behind. The phrase there just means to stay longer than expected. So they were not all together during these events. The expectation of mom and dad, they thought, well, he'll just come home after three days like normal. But Jesus, he's intending to stay for the full feast, and Joseph and his mother knew not of it. Now, before you cry bad parents, this is a common mistake of I assumed you had him, okay? And I've done that before. In fact, we got a phone call here when I'd been pastoring here for about six months, and we got a phone call from uh, one of the very concerned dads here and said, uh, Pastor Will, one of your sons is here, and he wants to know where you and Bev are. We had separate cars at the time, and we were going to lunch. You're we meeting somebody for lunch, and Bev had left earlier, and uh, and I had I had assumed he was with her, and because I looked around, didn't see him, and so I got in the car and I went to go meet everybody for lunch. Just because I did it doesn't mean jo- Joseph and Mary aren't bad parents, but the idea is this was even easier to occur in that day. See. The women left early in the morning, and the men wouldn't catch up to them until the evening camp. So it's similar. Two vehicles, you know, and you don't know who's got who. So, you know, and in addition, people always traveled in large caravans for safety. You would never be out on the road by by yourself at this time. So children frequently, they didn't hang out with, walk with mom and dad. They hung out with their friends or family members or cousins, whatever it might be. And so normally uh, you would not all get together until it was time to bring, to make break camp, have to make camp at the end of the night. So this was, was an easy mistake to make because Mary, Joseph, and Jesus would not have normally been together until they were about to go to sleep. So because of these travel arrangements, they didn't notice Jesus was missing until they went to bed that night. So if you've ever lost a child, be comforted. You know, at least you haven't lost the Messiah. When they discover, they come back to camp and they're like, you know, where's Jesus? It's getting kind of late. They begin to search around for him, verse 44. But they, supposing him to have been in the company, went a day's journey. So that's how far they were, they were camping by this point. And they sought him among their kinsfolk and acquaintances. So they start going to family and friends. Do you know where Jesus is? Do you see Jesus? Was Jesus with you? You know, I don't know if they went and found John the Baptist. Been like, listen, I know you're a troublemaker. Jesus is a good kid, but where, where is he? You know, I don't know how it went, but you know, they were looking for him and they couldn't find him. So verse 45, his parents, when they discover he's missing, they, they go back to Jerusalem. And when they found him not, they turning they turned back again to Jerusalem, seeking him, looking everywhere for him. Now it came to pass that after three days, now, can you imagine not knowing where your child was for three days? I would have been absolutely hysterical by this point. You know, we 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 have my youngest. He when he was little, we have totally. He will never do this again. But he did this all the time, where he would hide and he'd think it funny. And he was a little guy, and he could keep very quiet. And so we'd be hunting around. And of course, every you know, conceivable thing in your mind has happened. You know, he, he locked himself in the dryer, and, you know, and he's dead. You know? I mean, all sorts of things are running through your mind. You know, you're looking everywhere for the child. You can't find him. And of course, he's just quiet in a closet somewhere and giggling. And then you know, he'd come out. And of course, after a few times of that happening, we put a stop to that. But you know, he liked to do that. We, that was terrifying. I remember there was one time, you know, I, I'm not going to rat out which one it was, but he was out with friends and, uh, 
you know, we, we, we were expecting certain things to happen at a certain time, and, uh, and they didn't happen that way, and we were texting, and, and, and no response was coming in, and, and, you know, I called the police. A little bit of an overreaction. However, as far as I was concerned, he was dead in a ditch somewhere, you know? So, you know, I was very worried. I couldn't imagine not knowing where my child was for three days. I'd have been absolutely hysterical. Now, where do they finally find him? Well, a place that seems a little bit obvious afterwards, it says, and it came to pass that after three days, they found him in the temple. But note this, what's he doing there? Sitting in the midst of the doctors, both hearing them and asking them questions. Now, Alfred Edersheim, the great Jewish historian, said this. He said, we read in the Talmud that the members of the temple and the Sanhedrin, who on ordinary days sat as a court of appeal from the close of the morning to the time of the evening sacrifice, they were wont upon Sabbaths and feast days to come out upon the terrace, the top of the temple, and there to teach. And in such popular instruction, the utmost latitude of questioning would be given. In other words, you could ask any question you wanted during that time, and they would just they would be there and answer all those questions during the feast days and the Sabbath. It is in this audience which sat upon the ground below the temple, surrounding and mingling with the doctors, and hence during, not after the feast, that we must seek the child Jesus. So from this, Edersheim argues that the parents set out uh, for home before the close of the feast, after just the three days that the rabbis required them to be in Jerusalem. But that explains to us why Jesus stayed. Because the scriptures dictated that every person 12 and up was to stay in Jerusalem for the whole feast. So why would Jesus leave? He's obeying the word. Now, Jesus was among some very interesting company at this point. Only the most serious scholars stuck around for the Q&A time of the feast. The doctors here are the teachers or instructors of the law. These are the people who would be doing what I'm doing right now. They would be teaching and instructing the Jewish people in God's word. So these are scholars, they are students, they are teachers. These are the religious leaders of the nation. And who's there? A 12-year-old kid. Now, we must not get the idea that Jesus was teaching these people as a 12-year-old, okay? That would be entirely unacceptable in that culture. It would not be respectful. It would not happen. Jesus was asking really good questions and listening to their answers. A couple of things I want to point off here. First off, note that as they're all gathering to you know, hear the teaching of the law and then ask their questions, they all don't look around and go, what's this 12-year-old punk doing here, you know? They, they don't look at Jesus and they don't dismiss him. They, you know, this, they didn't say, this is an adult conversation, kid. I want to encourage you, don't ever discourage a young person who's asking questions about the Lord. Because let me tell you this, you may never get another opportunity to do so. We have learned as, as parents that as our kids have gotten older, they're not always ready when we're ready to talk about the Lord. You know, we'll get in the car sometimes and say, so guys, what did you learn about in Sunday school? The Bible. Well, what do you, you study the Bible? Jesus. You know, and, and the reason is, is why? is because, you know, they're, they're coloring or they're thinking about the, what they did with their friends or they're excited to go to lunch with their friends or whatever. They're not ready to have a spiritual conversation. But what I found is, as I kind of lumber into the bedroom to put them to bed at night, you know, like, okay, guys, let's pray, whatever. And they're like, hey, dad, you know, we were learning about, you know, Barnabas and Paul got in a fight today, you know, in Acts. And I don't understand that. I thought they both loved Jesus. You better be ready to go. 
You can't look at him and be like, now? I'm tired, man. You're, you were supposed to be in bed 30 minutes ago. You know, turn that brain off, you know? No, that's the time you sit down with them and you go, well, let's talk about that because you may not get another opportunity. And let me, I promise you this, if it's not important enough to you that you'll sacrifice whatever it is you want to do to talk to them about it, they'll learn it's not very important. They'll learn that. So you have to let them know, you know, that is, it's important. Now, I mean, obviously, I, you know, there are times when, you know, it's midnight, you know, and they're contemplating the depths of, you know, the Trinity or whatever. You're like, go to bed, dude. You know, we'll talk about it in the morning. But, <laughs> you know, I mean, unless they're older, but, you know, you know what I'm saying. You know, you get the idea. There are times, you know, when you have to, you know, you, they, they're just trying to stay up. But, but I always try to take advantage of those moments when they're asking. Don't ever, ever discourage a young person who's asking questions about the Lord. If they're hungry, feed them, feed them. Too often we tell young people they're the future of the church, but that's unbiblical. If they believe in the Lord, if they, they put their trust in the Lord, then they are the church now. They're not the future of the church. They are the church and they can speak into your life. I've heard some of the most profound things from my own kids or from some of the young people here. They'll come to pastor. Well, I've got a question. They got way better questions than you adults, way better. Because they they're not fearful. They're not fearful of sounding stupid or fearful of what someone might think of them because they're questioning something, you know? And they'll come up to me and they'll say, Pastor, well, I don't understand why this happened. Hardest questions I've ever answered have never been from an adult. Always been from a young person. Pastor, this looks like a contradiction. Or Pastor, well, uh, this doesn't seem to match with this attribute of God. They're like, all right, man, I got my work cut out for me. But I love it because... As I'm pouring into them, I know they're, if, if they can get a handle on it, they'll, they'll never leave them. They'll never leave them. You guys, you're all so old, you're, still, you're stubborn now. You're set in your ways, you know? No, I'm serious. I'm the same way. You know, people come to me and they want to shake my cup a little bit. I have to remind myself, say, Will, let your cup be shaken. Don't be so stubborn that you're not unwilling to change, unwilling to learn. First Timothy chapter 5, verses 1 and 2 tells us, you know, about how we should treat the young people in our church and, and, and the, those who are older. It says, rebuke not an elder, but entreat him as a father. You know, if you're a young person and you're here, don't look at the, the older folks as, as people who don't get it because let me tell you something, they get it way better than you think. And don't, so don't be like, listen, old man, you don't understand. No, no, they understand. They were your age once too. They've just learned the stupid lessons already. Listen, don't rebuke an elder but entreat him as a father. But then it says, treat the younger men like brethren, not like second-class citizens or underclassmen or anything like that. Treat them like brethren. The elder women, like mothers. The younger, like sisters with all purity. That's how we're supposed to treat each other in the church. And we need every age group, you know, everyone. There is something quite beautiful when we see the old and the young working together. This is the way it's supposed to be. This is how the church should operate. Older men teaching and encouraging younger men. Young men actually going to older men and seeking advice and counsel. The church is purposefully diverse. It's made of different people with different ages and upbringings, all with the goal of knowing Jesus more and glorifying Him. There should be unity and the bond of love among all the people of the church especially when we think of all God has done for us and the love He has shown us. 
If you have any spiritual or physical needs, please contact us. We would love to pray for you and assist you in any way we can. You can reach us at Calvary Chapel Orlando at 407-523-0800 during our office hours Tuesday through Friday, 9 a.m. to 4 p.m. This has been In the Word with Pastor Will, a ministry of Calvary Chapel of Orlando. You can listen to all of Pastor Will's sermons and find other valuable resources online at www.calvarychapelorlando.com or on the Calvary Chapel Orlando app, available on iTunes and Google Play. Thank you for joining us today. We will see you next time as we continue to learn, walk, and live in the Word.